It's The World This Week. The World This Week in partnership with The Daily Beast. Joining us from London, Nick O'Hines, world editor of The Daily Beast. How are things by the banks of the River Thames? Beautiful, beautiful over here. Good evening. Good evening as well to uh, Vivian Walt, Paris correspondent for Time magazine. How are you? Very good. Very good. Okay, let's see if Marie Gégaud, staff reporter at the, the international desk of French daily newspaper Le Monde, is very good. Very good. All right, thanks for being with us. Thanks as well to Lila Jacino, uh, who uh, is a senior editor at France24.com. How are things? Not bad. It's Friday. Not bad. It's mm -hmm. Friday. You can uh, listen, like, and subscribe to The World This Week on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other fine streaming services. It's back to the brutal reality of war. A week ago at this time, some were still holding out hope that uh, a week-long cease uh, truce uh, between Israel and Hamas could somehow be revived after it had fallen apart. Now it's house-to-house -house combat in the streets of Gaza, central city of uh, Khan Yunus. And a fresh draft resolution at the UN Security Council in New York calling for a humanitarian cease of fire. Uh, strong words by the UN Secretary General, uh, Lila Jacinto, saying uh, Hamas's brutality can never justify, quote, the collective punishment of Palestinians. Uh, Antonio Guterres, who the uh, Israelis have made a lightning rod uh, uh, since this conflict began. Absolutely. I mean, first and foremost, Antonio Guterres has invoked a very rare article. Uh, it's Article 99 of the UN C Convention. Uh, this is a rare move. And you are dead right. Uh, uh, you know, Guterres very early in this conflict became a lightning rod uh, for Israel when I think he, right, when he said that there is a context uh, to October 7th. You know, there, there are... I mean, this is such a divisive issue. And by now, two months uh, into this war, you see exactly where all these these lightning points are. You know, who's who's trying to talk about what, uh, you know, the context, you know, who is who's who does not want to just take the, the this conversation from October 7th, uh, you know, who is not condemning Hamas enough, uh, you know. So these are the things that it, it, it's all coming down to. I mean, Israel has had a very, very difficult relationship with the UN. Uh, and this week, uh, Israel uh, revoked the residency visa of the UN's uh, humanitarian coordinator. She is a Canadian. Uh, but Francois, I remember, you know, this was in 2005 uh, at an APAC uh, summit uh, when uh, in Washington, D.C., when they had all, the, you know, these kids from different universities uh, come in for the summit. Uh, I was interviewing them at the start of the summit. They all said they don't really know much about the Middle East. It's, it's very complicated, university kids. And then they had these sessions for them, which was close to the media. I slipped into one of them. Uh, and they were basically telling the kids that the U.N. is against Israel and it had you know a, a very easy early distortion uh, of how uh, uh, of how the UN is against Israel you, you know I mean it, I have to say it's the end of the year but it really feels like I'm watching the end of the world order as it was and it's it, it somehow uh, you know seems destined yeah. that you know the U, UN institutions are being questioned yeah, and that brings us back to what you said at the outset. This uh, evocation, I think it was the last time, was when uh, uh, there was the civil war between Pakistan and, and, and what is now Bangladesh. Uh, 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 first time since then, the, uh, evoking this Article uh, 99 by the UN Secretary General. 
there is clearly, in my view, a serious risk of aggravating existing threats to the maintenance of international peace and security. The risk of collapse of the humanitarian system is fundamentally linked with a complete lack of safety and security for our staff in Gaza and with the nature and intensity of military operations which are severely limiting access to people in desperate need. Marie Jigo, how is Antonio Guterres doing in this? How, excuse me? How is he doing? Well, he's trying to... But uh, we see clearly that uh, the, the Security Council is totally uh, paralyzed, and it's not the first time that we see this, but it was probably the United States and uh, Great Britain, they are going to veto the... the so the, there is few chance that there will be a ceasefire in, uh, in Gaza. And we have seen in the past how the Security Council was completely blocked by uh, Russia, by Russia's veto for, in Syria, for the war in Syria. So, of course, uh, maybe like Le Leila said, uh, we, are, uh, uh, we are seeing the, 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 the paralyze and the, the end of the, the Security Council, which should be reformed. Uh, we know this, and uh, there are a lot of uh, talks about it, but uh, no hope. Uh, the the uh, reform of the Security Council, in this case, it would be the US and, and Britain that would be uh, outnumbered, uh, Vivian Walt. Uh, well, and France. Um, but uh, yes, I mean, uh, you know, Marie brings up a very good point, which is you have these five veto power nations, which no longer represent any kind of consensus. Um, and it, this isn't the first war that, uh, that this has kind of been exposed. It's also the Ukraine war, um, that there is what I think what's so scary is that there is no longer, it seems, an infrastructure globally in which to maneuver one's way out of a really hot war. Um, that just does not seem to be functioning at all. It's kind of like a runaway train. Um, and I think that's what's so dangerous about uh, the situation. The Secretary General talks about we're at risk of the um, humanitarian situation be, uh, of collapsing. I, I mean, I would say from everything that you read and people you hear speak, it has collapsed. It is really not functioning. Yeah. There is no real humanitarian structure anymore. Right, so the, uh, it's not the, the UN Security Council that's uh, uh, going to, where the watershed moment is going to happen. The Israeli government has talked of a months-long campaign in Gaza, and even though the U.S. Uh, seems set to veto uh, the latest uh, resolution calling for a humanitarian ceasefire. It has uh, changed the way it speaks. Uh, there was a Thursday telephone call between Joe Biden and Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, Biden talking up uh, the concept of humanitarian corridors and protecting uh, civilians. Uh, U.S., Israel's main ally, uh, making noises publicly. As we stand here almost a week into this campaign in the, the South after the end of the humanitarian uh, pause, it is imperative, it remains imperative, that Israel put a premium on civilian protection. And there does remain a gap between exactly what, what I said when I was there, the intent to protect civilians, and the actual results that we're seeing uh, on the ground. 
Nicole Hines, is that as far as the Biden administration can go at this point? Well, I think they're ratcheting the pressure up bit by bit and will very slowly, it has to be said, that the uh, pressure is increasing. Um, they're obviously keeping Biden's powder dry because he has basically said almost nothing um, other than putting his full support behind Israel and, and Bibi Netanyahu, even though there are huge political differences between them. Biden is somebody who has been really uh, kind of in, uh, involved and uh, deeply moved by the kind of cause of Israel since the beginning of his political career. Um, he's very much a kind of previous generation of politician in, in, in that way. And, it, and all he has said so far is that he will give his support. Meanwhile, his staff... He did know, tell the Israelis... The he, did, he, did, given, he, he did tell the Israelis uh, heed the calls of... Uh, uh, the mistakes the U.S. made after 9-11. Yeah, yeah, which is a, a very, a very good point, a very strong point. But it's, it's, it's a bit different to kind of saying, hold on a minute, what you're doing is out of order, which is, you know, what we just heard on that clip. Um, and it's fascinating that Biden is, Biden's administration is saying something completely different to him. And it seems to me that what they're doing is they're waiting for a moment when Biden himself comes out and says, OK, you've now reached a line and this is no longer acceptable. It's fascinating to, to see what will happen at the Security Council. The Security Council is always a bit of a kind of puppet show, you know. I, I don't know whether Britain and the America will vote in the same way, but they will certainly collude between each other to make sure that the ultimately that the ceasefire does not pass. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very hard to see how their position in this um, is, kind of can cause a an agreement you know the the, the 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 pause that we had last week was negotiated seemingly just by egypt and qatar rather than the united states so there does seem to be a shift in whose responsibility and who can be trusted to negotiate these things and yet the u.s uh, get, bearing the brunt of uh, we've seen uh, there were uh, fresh missile attacks uh, uh, overnight in baghdad on the green zone uh, at the u.s targeting uh, the u.s embassy uh, we saw the week beginning with the United States scrambling a naval task force after uh, weekend attacks in the Red Sea. Iran-aligned Houthi uh, rebels have been targeting commercial vessels carrying Israeli goods or suspected Israeli goods. It even captured uh, a ship, the Bahamas flag Galaxy Leader. And while the 25 crew members remain prisoners, it's offering tours of the boat to the public. We will seize all Israeli ships in and around the Red Sea. This is in defense of our brothers in Gaza and children being killed at hospitals and women in their homes. So the conflict, and the Houthis have said, this is linked to what's going on in Gaza. Absolutely. As is, you know, what we're seeing in Iraq, although, of course, there were, you know, attacks in Iraq before, but um, this clearly has the potential to spread quickly and quite widely. Um, I think what's, um, what's so baffling to me is the actual strategy. What is Israel's strategy at this point? Because it does not seem to make much sense. There does not seem to be a way to militarily obliterate Hamas. Um, and so short of that, what are you doing? 
um, and what is happening afterwards. Um, there doesn't seem to be a real plan for what comes after the war. And by the way, we almost forget the fact that there are more than 100 hostages in captivity. If we had thought that, like, more than, you know, a little more than two months ago, that there would be 100 Israeli hostages in captivity and it would basically be a kind of footnote in this war, it would have been unimaginable. Um, I mean, so, the, the interesting thing is not not just what is the political plan, but what is the military plan, which is the extremely short-term plan. You know, they're on the ground in the north. They are around in the south. They have a huge network of tunnels. The Wall Street Journal has reported that there is a plan to flood the tunnels with water. You know, that would lead to an atrocity that would be just unfolding before our eyes. Militarily, uh, you know, Israel will be conducting a, a subterranean war, sort of like a video game, because they do not quite understand the extent of these tunnels. You know, Hamas fighters will be able to exit uh, as they will. You know, this flooding, if it takes place. How about killing a few senior commanders? Because that has been something that they've talked about a lot. I mean, you know, they keep talking about, you know, killing Yaya Sinwa. So they surround they surround yeah, his, exactly. his house uh, uh, and his family gets killed. Uh, punished, collective punishment against uh, international law. He's he's a political guy. So, I mean, you know, if they lose, if Hamas loses a top commander or two, yes, it is a loss of, of some human resources. But this is an organization that it's inbuilt into its, its, mm -hmm. its, its very makeup, uh, you know, that it will survive. And frankly, even if Hamas is down to its last fighters, even if it fires one little rocket, it will proclaim its further resistance. And after this level of a crackdown, down. Uh, you know, no, nobody even knows how ordinary Palestinians uh, will react to Hamas because we love to talk about, you know, the failure of Palestinian leadership. You know, it's the West's favorite sticking point. But we never talk about how we never enabled uh, a Palestinian uh, leadership. So, so, you know, Hamas is, is, is not going to, you know, it's militarily going to be difficult. Forget about politically, mm. which is... Which, which is difficult. Mm. And there are all these confusing pieces in this puzzle. The Iran-aligned Houthi, uh, Houthis have been fighting a Saudi Arabia-led coalition, and yet, a day before Iran's president traveled to Moscow, Vladimir Putin was in Riyadh. He was welcomed by the Saudi uh, crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, and, I mean, all right, Marie Jigo, I know that they're both uh, OPEC plus members, uh, and by the way, the price of oil is down. Uh, yeah. Uh, since the since the, the the pair met, what do you make of of, of Vladimir Putin's little tour? He he also went to the UAE, right? Because uh, they are the two. Uh, the UAE, for example, is a main uh, partner uh, for Russia, for uh, because uh, mostly uh, it's a hub for uh, uh, commercial uh, dealing. Um, banks, a uh, lot of uh, oligarchs uh, went there and live there now. But uh, it's interesting, of course. But I think there is an aspect that we haven't mm, seen, uh, which is, of, because of course they are not going to tell us, I mean, Putin uh, nor um, uh, uh, Ben Salman, Mohammed Ben Salman, are not going to tell us that, uh, in fact, there is a problem um, in uh, OPEC Plus because they want to, uh, uh, to, mm, um, the the price oils to to get higher, mm. but it doesn't happen. And then 
Russia was committed to uh, reduce uh, its production, but we see that it, we are not sure that Russia is doing this. In fact, uh, it was mentioned but by uh, a ministry, a Saudian Ministry of Energy in June, that Russia, of course, is not transparent about the oil uh, uh, it's exporting. But uh, there is also an another aspect that uh, um, Elvira Nabiulina, uh, the Russian central bank governor, was uh, in the delegation, which means that uh, for what you take with you the, the Russian uh, governor of the central bank, it's uh, strange, probably because uh, I guess Russia has a lot of financial problems because, of course, uh, Russia sells a lot of oil since uh, the, the, the war in Ukraine. And but since, at a discounted uh, price in many cases. Yeah. Yeah. War in a region that's uh, the cradle of the planet's uh, three great monotheist religions always turns into a political third rail for everybody else. Uh, since October 7th, anti-Semitic acts here in France have surged. So, rabbis invited to the presidential palace to light the menorah for the first night of Hanukkah, the Jewish festival of lights, seems pretty straightforward. Except, wait, the presidential palace is holy ground for the secular republic. The far left objects, saying if you're lighting menorahs, why not a nativity scene? or an iftar breaking of the fast during Ramadan uh, at the Elysee. Uh, Emmanuel Macron s says he stands by uh, what he did. Was it clumsy? Should he not I have done say it? say have them all. <laughs> have an iftar and, you know, Christmas trees and lights, and we could really use it. marie um. is it? how big a problem is it to have a, the lighting of a menorah in the in the how the temple of secularism that's supposed to be the presidential palace <laughs> it's a little bit too much uh, a temple of uh, secularism maybe and we are we french we are maybe too uh, too uh, we pay too much attention to such uh, details it should not be um, except like this. that the head of crif this is the main uh, jewish institution in france jonathan uh, Arfi, he actually said that it was an error for uh, for Macron to do that, and he said, uh, you, you know, you know his his quote, "What anything that weakens secularism, weakens the Jews of France." So you know, this is also. Uh, this is Gaff. a statement on how this this conflict is playing in Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, not only with the Houthis, you know, we are seeing a security situation and as someone who has covered uh, Al-Qaeda and Daesh, etc. I mean, you know, I can't tell you the number of war zones that I've been where I try to keep people on track and they start talking about the Israeli-Palestinian issue. You know, there's that security issue. There's a domestic issue uh, in Europe. Uh, this is a really far-reaching conflict. All right. Uh, also, by the way, lighting Hanukkah candles, Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, himself a Jew, non-observant, but the lighting prayer candles uh, seems somehow appropriate in view of the stalemate uh, at the front as uh, the uh, uh, war heads into another uh, winter. And the tenuous financial lifeline uh, he's got from allies, uh, 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 the, that he's got uh, from uh, allies, and uh, 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 on that point, Emmanuel Macron did more, by the way, on Thursday than welcome rabbis to the Elysee Palace. He wined and dined his Hungarian counterpart, a holdout for the 50 billion euro aid package for Ukraine that's on the table at next uh, week's last EU summit of uh, 2023. Is it the right strategy, Nico Heinz, to uh, uh, have uh, the uh, transactional populist uh, prime minister of uh, Hungary 
over for dinner uh, and uh, for Emmanuel Macron to, to, to do that ahead of that summit? Yeah, I think so. I think it's exactly what we need to do because otherwise we're in risk of a really, really serious problem here. If, if by kind of almost by accident the uh, aid supplies dry up for the for Ukraine, then you know Russia. Let's be clear, Russia will win this war, um, and it won't take very long for the supplies to run out if the funds are cut off. So I think Macron is doing exactly the right thing. I think. Every form of diplomacy should be deployed to try and get this thing over the line. If you look at what's going on in the United States, it's just a complete joke. Like the, it's a narrow political argument. Most of the Republicans who are voting against this don't even care about what happens in Europe. It's so far away from their narrow political interests. But the war is at risk of becoming a kind of sacrificial lamb as some uh, crazed right-wing Republicans try and make sure that they can firm up the base ahead of the Donald Trump election. And of course, the, Don the possibility you're, of You're Trump calling it the Donald the Trump House election. <laughs> Yeah, well, let's face it, that's who we're going to be talking about. That's who we're going to be listening to. Um, Joe Biden, <clears throat> Joe Biden, bless him, he, he, get, he struggles to get his voice heard above the parapet when it comes to uh, the attention of Donald Trump. We haven't seen him yet going head to head with Biden, and, and that's something that's going to come to the fore. And if you listen to what's happening in Moscow at the moment, if you, you know, we have people who watch the uh, propaganda channels in Moscow and report back for us. They are cock-a-hoop with what the Republicans have done in Washington this week. And they are convinced that Trump's going to come back, save the day and ensure that Putin is victorious in Ukraine. All right. 50 billion euros in limbo over in Brussels, 50 billion dollars on hold in the U.S. after Senate Republicans insisted on tying aid to a tightening of domestic border controls. We want that to pass. But while we're talking about borders, uh, my advice to the majority leader last week was, if you don't believe how serious we are about this, then file cloture. Is the horse trading that Viktor Orban uh, delves into the same as the horse trading on Capitol Hill? N not exactly, in the sense that Viktor Orban is pretty near the war front. Um, so it really is his kind of you know, sphere of influence, shall we say. Um, and he has always aligned quite closely with Moscow. Um, so he, um, he represents the flank of the 27 EU nations that is perhaps closest of all to Moscow. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, in Washington, it's like they're too busy, you know, indicting Hunter Biden to talk about mm. the Ukraine war. It's uh, right. it's really astonishing. Yeah. yeah, I don't I don't think uh, it was a good idea to invite uh, Orban uh, for dinner or for uh, lunch to because with this kind of guy uh, there is no. It was the same thing when uh, Macron invited Putin in uh, in Versailles and in uh, uh, his uh, summer uh, summer residence. Macron's argument was you have to go through the motions, otherwise you'll be criticized if you don't. I think with such kind of uh, people, uh, you don't do this. You just uh, you you just go brutal. The, it's the only language they can understand. So there is no need in inviting. And I mean, uh, this uh, Orban, it is a shame because if you think of what Hungary 
went through. In 56, when uh, people were killed uh, in... Uh, uh, Soviet tanks rolled into Budapest. Yeah, and now he's uh, playing uh, the Putin card. And uh, I mean, this is a shame. Mila Jacinto. Look, I mean, in the U.S., they have, there's always been this sort of isolationist stream in the U.S., and there's always been Americans who are not very involved in foreign policy. But then there are there are the Beltway crowd uh, and the people who are engaged in foreign policy issues. And there's no doubt that, uh, you know, Ukraine has turned out of sight, out of mind, because Gaza is, 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 is taking over uh, all, all the attention. And also, you know, when it comes to... <clears throat> I don't know, when, it, when it, it comes to Ukraine, it's not just Hungary. I mean, even Poland is, uh, is you know, there are, the, there are the Polish truckers and the Polish farmers who, who are unhappy about the prices. So we're really starting to, to see the strains in, in, in that coalition. And I, and I can't help, you know, seeing this, this pattern uh, over here of, you know, the U.S. comes out strongly for Ukraine, a year ago, uh, and, uh, and, and, and now it's, it's, things are falling apart. Uh, and in the Middle East, uh, the U.S. is, you know, it, it, it's, it's down to Qatar and Egypt. So, you know, the U.S. credibility on the international stage is, is really taking a hit. It's, it's never been stronger economically. We've seen the, the latest jobs reports this Friday out of the United States, uh, unemployment below 4%. Um, and yet uh, we've seen this battle on Capitol Hill, uh, even though he's clinging to a three-seat majority. It's the pro-Trump speaker of the House of Representatives that's been looming large in this showdown. Mike Johnson, seen here Tuesday, welcoming uh, the new UK Foreign Secretary. Nico Hines, that UK Foreign Secretary looks a lot like David Cameron. <laughs> He's back. Um, yeah, it's uh, very strange to see him wandering around. Uh, he's um, kind of been tempted back from the um, from the wilderness, from his back garden where he was sitting in a kind of um, little caravan writing books. Um, suddenly he's been thrust back into the limelight. And I think the truth is he was just bored before, so he's now got something to do. Um, and perhaps, you know, it, there is some uh, utility to having somebody with a famous face. You know, I don't know that Mike Johnson cares, but you can imagine that you have a little bit more heft uh, when you're walking through the corridors of power on Capitol Hill and people might be a little bit more willing to listen to you. But uh, I wouldn't hold your breath that Cameron's going to save the day and bring us world peace. All right. By the way, world peace, speaking of it, you know, we can uh, bemoan endless wars, but sometimes old rivals can get along. Uh, there's no problem Turkey and Greece can't solve together. Recep Tayyip Erdogan's words in Athens on Thursday, his first trip there since 2017. Uh, that one was uh, uh, long be remembered. Uh, and this comes just three years after the two nations nearly went to war again. Uh, but now they're getting along better all of a sudden, Marie Jago. It started with uh, Greece helping Turkey when there was the earthquake, the earthquake at the beginning right. of the year. Yeah. Uh, um, what our reasons. correspondent in Ankara was saying was part of helping to facilitate all of this is that the United States uh, is sending those F-16 fighter jets that Turkey has wanted for so long. Yeah, and uh, we see now that uh, still uh, Turkey hasn't, hasn't got them. So there is a problem here. 
but uh, it's interesting because uh, Erdogan was saying uh, three months ago that he, he wanted to delete the name of uh, Mitsotakis. He said, I, I will delete your name. Uh, you have nothing uh, to me now. <laughs> and three months after, he's uh, shaking hands. So who's more transactional, Viktor Orban <laughs> or, or Recep Tayyip Erdogan? Yeah, the kind, same kind, same kind. Or alternatively, everyone is, 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 is very depth at, at diplomacy. You know, he gets away with a lot of things. He can suddenly surprise you. Yeah. Um, but the results, the results are terrible, you see because uh, uh, Turkey is very isolated uh, and uh, so he has a bad relationship with uh, everybody I mean with uh, you see he tried he's trying to 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 go now for but better he is cutting deals with both sides when it comes to the war in Ukraine yeah Yes, I, right. I I actually don't think so. And also after his his election, uh, you know, his completely berserk economic policy, he's this toned down on that. Uh, he's making outreaches to the West. He is the one who is you know who is most strident in what he says uh, about uh, is Israel. You know that. It, it, eternal battle that he has to be the leader of, of the Muslim world. I think Erdogan is coming out uh, out of this year doing pretty well for himself. Uh, it, right. it depends. It's a show also. It's so, showing, but uh, the results are really uh, no, no, no good because, uh, as you said, the economical situation is uh, very bad and then uh, no, uh, uh, no uh, uh, progress in view with the EU. Uh, so he's not still, uh, although he promised to do so, but still uh, Sweden is not... Uh, going to... Mm-hmm. is not entering NATO no, for, for no, the no. time being. The attack was random, not the choice of location. A radicalized 26-year-old with a history of mental illness stabbing to death a German-Filipino tourist. It happened near the Eiffel Tower Saturday evening. Uh, that's seven months out from Paris hosting the Olympics, where organizers opted for an opening ceremony, not in the usual setting inside of a stadium. Instead, it's going to showcase uh, the French capital's most iconic landmarks. The government standing by that decision. We have no plan B. We have a plan in which there are several sub-plans with a certain number of adjustment variables. That's the case for artistic events, which will only be finalized in the spring. And we have the capability to reduce certain aspects of the artistic program. Vivian Walt, are you looking forward to the opening ceremony of the Summer Olympics? You bet. I mean, it's going to be... Is it going to be a problem or or does last Saturday's attack cast a shadow? I think last Saturday's attack, in the the grand scheme of things, was a very small attack. It has everybody obviously very worried because, firstly, the victim was a tourist and we're going to have millions of tourists in the city. Um, secondly, you know, if you remember, when Paris bid for the Olympics, it was very shortly after the Paris attacks in 2015. And it was their way of saying, you know, we're back, we're, rec- you know, this is us bouncing back and we're, you know, we're going to be the most, the splashiest, most... I, I asked the question because the, the last major event that was hosted here was the final of the Champions League where... Uh, French riot police were yes. uh, used in heavy-handed methods and uh, fans were uh, roughed up and some didn't even get to go into the stadium. I mean, I have almost no doubt that there will be some security incident, hopefully minor, 
during the weeks of the Olympics. There are simply too many moving parts and too many people, and this is a city of millions of people and an extremely diverse population. It's a security nightmare in many ways. Um, the question is, like, if you're going to host the Olympics, you know, this is what you're dealing with. Um, where are you not dealing with it unless you have it in a very remote city in very locked down conditions? Um, and in fact, almost no cities are bidding for the Olympics these days. I was so, just going to say, unless you don't have it. Yeah. I mean, it, the, in fact, for the one after uh, well, it was Paris Divina, are, and LA. Are you sitting next to Are you sitting next to a Parisienne who doesn't want the Olympics <laughs> and pay more for my metro ticket? Dear, dear, it's going to be just a nightmare. Oh dear, the Olympics are in Paris. The scandal of the week, though, is eleven time zones away. Dateline: the village of Chopu, that's on the French Polynesian island of Tahiti, uh, host of the surfing competition at uh, next summer's uh, games. Uh, but the vintage wooden judging tower, beloved by surfers the world over, had to go, insisted the International Olympic Committee, not up to standards. And when it came time to break ground on a new metal tower for judges and journalists, it uh, happened uh, just as, uh, th there you see the, the, the old uh, tower, uh, just as environmentalists had predicted, the wrecking of the bay's delicate coral reef. This test went badly. If we can't find a solution, we'll have to face the possibility of a change in venue. Right, that was the, the president of the, of the French Polynesia uh, region. Uh, Nico Hines, uh, surfing in Tahiti. Seemed like a, uh, an intriguing idea when it was announced. Well, I tell you, I'll volunteer to go and cover this one uh, <laughs> if you're looking for anybody. I think... Um, uh, look, I think I think this is just absolute classic IOC arrogance. You know, this place that they've chosen is somewhere that's hosted dozens of uh, world surfing championships. They have surfing competitions there all the time. They've got this system that they use where they put up a wooden viewing platform. It's worked for decades. Why on earth would the IOC have to say, we know better, we have to do it this way, this is the official way to do it? You know, you, they just have no sympathy and no empathy for local customs. And it's just, it's just the IOC all over. Um, and it's a, it's a real shame. Hopefully they can come to some sort of compromise where they use... Um, you know, a platform like they have for the for the for the surfers um, that happen that are there all the time. Um, it's really caused a big uproar among the surfing community who take this spot very very seriously. You know, Kelly Slater, the kind of surfing icon, has been outspoken saying that they shouldn't put in this metal platform and. Um, something like 180,000 surfing fans have signed a petition to try and stop them from doing it, um, and I'm sure they'll come up with some sort of compromise in the end. And I bet the pictures will be absolutely fantastic, even if it is 15,000 kilometers away from Paris, which is supposedly hosting this Olympics. By the way, uh, the Olympics are into their second Tahiti gate in as many months. The financial prosecutor's office has opened a probe into Paris Mayor Anne Hidalgo's 
60,000 euro inspection tour. Yes, uh, you volunteered, uh, Nico Hines, but she actually uh, made the trip. This <laughs> is a trip that was paid for by Lila Jacinto and other uh, <laughs> residents of the city of Paris. Um, uh, Marie Jégo, your, your, your thoughts on... on uh, on Anidalgo's trip? To, to, the, to Tahiti and, and... Yeah, of course, you know, it's, uh, it's terrible. <laughs> of course, it's a terrible image. Uh, she should be uh, exemplary and she's not. And, uh, but it's the same if we look at the COP28. Uh, they are all uh, meeting to reduce uh, the carbon emission and then you, you see that they all come with uh, three, four planes and uh, the, the, the cars, the, the, the luxury watch and the... the, the <laughs> you, sound, you sound resigned about this, like, well, French politicians, there's nothing more you can do about them. Oh, I think uh, maybe uh, people will, will judge. Uh, apparently, uh, people in Paris are not happy with uh, what she's doing, uh, so maybe uh, she will not stay. She went there because her daughter, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, she, she went for the inspection tour, but she stayed on uh, Vivian Waltz because uh, to, to spend a bit of vacation time. Her daughter's working there right now. Which makes it even worse. I mean, she, yeah. you know, she's sort of mixing business with the family. You know, the, the taxpayers are paying for yeah. her to go and sort of see her family across the world and in high style in a place which is kind of nice to go to in the middle of winter. Um, so it, the whole thing looked bad. On the other hand, I agree with Marie that this is so classically um, the way things happen with these giant global events. Same with the World Cup, if you recall. Um, the dis dissatisfaction of Macron jetting back and forth to see Les Bleus play at the World Cup in Doha. Um, and uh, the Argentine president came out and said, I'm going to stay at home and watch, it, watch the final with my people. And he was hailed for that. Um, and this is the same kind of thing. It's sort of, you know, the, um, the enormous sums of money that are sort of slushing through these international organizations, whether it be FIFA or the IOC. Um, and um, it's distasteful to regular people. I agree with you. This, distasteful to regular people. Um, uh, and you're both talking about the, 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 the problems that the planet is facing as that uh, COP28 uh, summit uh, takes place in Dubai. As far back as 1988, Time magazine put Saving the Environment on the cover for its person of the year, or in this case, planet of the year. Um, that was back when Pluto, by the way, was still a planet. So I'm glad that, 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 that Earth won and not <laughs> what is now a non-planet. For 2023, it's Taylor Swift uh, succeeding uh, last year's choice of Volodymyr Zelensky, the U.S. pop star whose Eras tour is currently breaking box office records. Vivian Walt, why Taylor Swift? <laughs> well, let's just say she's going to sell more magazines than the cover that has that the much we know, on. right? Um, that's first, first and foremost. But um, maybe not foremost. I don't want to, um, you know, belittle the choice. I actually think it's kind of an inspired choice. Um, she's the first artist to make it to 
be the person of the year that, and time's done it for like 85 years, I believe. Um, so, um, so wait a minute. So uh, Elvis <coughs> Presley, the Beatles, uh, Michael Dylan. Jackson, Bob Dylan, Madonna. No, and it's not like Taylor Swift is bigger than Elvis or the Beatles, although she certainly is economically. Um, but, uh, but the fact is that we're living in a, med in a sort of viral social media era in which she, is, she has taken the world by storm. She has made a billion dollars of her concerts so far. She's got another year of these concerts to go. Um, it's estimated she'll make about three But if you're putting her on the, the cover of Time, it's because she's about more than music. She's about more than music. She's about a kind of self-made, mega, mega successful brand that appears to have the power. I'm no Swifty myself, but she appears to have the power of unity on a very mass scale, which apparently no one else does right now. I guess that was the thinking. Or maybe Time magazine just needs to sell its magazine to younger people. Nico Hines, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I'm a bit skeptical about this. I think it's a bit grotesque because I think really the only thing you can say about Taylor Swift um, as opposed to, say, Michael Jackson or Madonna or previous kind of global icons is that, yes, she's been the most successful money-making kind of machine. But I'm not sure that that's something that we should be particularly aspiring to. But her, her, it's her, her songs, that, yes, her, she's, in her songs, uh, she's about... Uh, uh, empowerment, uh, standing up for yourself. Uh, she uh, uh, talks about, uh, in very raw manner, about her breakups. Uh, she resonates. She does. I think the songs themselves don't have anywhere near the same kind of level of musical legacy as some of those other icons we've just been talking about. You know, mm -hmm. I think if you went to the average person in the street and asked them to list 10 of her biggest songs that the people would be struggling. However, I do think she's, you know, in a very impressive character. And I think um, there's a clip that um, went around that was about her deciding to kind of make her first forays into politics in 2018. You know, it was the midterms after Trump had been elected and her father was begging her not to say anything. And she was um, actually breaking down in tears, saying this was the most important thing. She had to be true to herself. She had to come out and say what she really thought. And I think that sort of thing is very inspiring. But, you know, five years after that, what impact, what campaign, what causes is she using her massive influence to change the world with? I think it's a somewhat hollow money-making um, salute and it's a, it feels a little bit tawdry to me. Tawdry or maybe mm. the, the, the other shoe is yet to drop. But we've seen uh, fans of the Korean uh, pop group BTS have sometimes weighed in on politics. Uh, could the Swifties be a factor in 2024? I don't know, but uh, I find it extremely positive because, you know, the other candidates were uh, Vladimir Putin on the list. I don't know, Viviane, maybe, you, maybe it's not... Yeah, I mean, I guess it's sort of like I can tell you the kind of company line, and it is true in a sense that, uh, you know, this is not a, a kind of uh, hero uh, pick. I mean, you know, Stalin was it's not the hero person of the year. Of the year. Yeah, no. it is not hero of the year. They have those 
as well, I believe. But um, this is not it. It's just the most news-making person. Putin was person of the year yeah. at one in point. In 2007, so, yeah, yeah, I remember. But uh, I've been told that uh, Xi Jinping was uh, on the list too, so I'm very glad that... Uh, <laughs> It was Taylor Swift and not... Uh, I mean, it's inspiring for young people and she's so beautiful and uh, I think it's a positive uh, move in the, the terrible world uh, But in it which is we true, live. I think, also what Nico says that, and so what? You know, she has all this massive global power and giant amounts of money. What's she doing with it um, at this mm. terrible moment in history? And I can't say I can answer that, even having read the whole cover story this uh, this week. Well, <clears throat> let's all hail this rich, beautiful, blonde <laughs> woman who is the most spectacular thing to come out of the whole year. What, you're saying it should have been someone like Beyonce instead? Cause, <laughs> no, because Be Beyonce has also got that same sort of message, yes, but from yeah. a different musical roots uh, that, 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 that Taylor true. Swift has. And how has she... How has she pushed what has happened in 2023 any further? I mean, she's just made more money. You know, the fact that she had, you know, she had to... You, you have clearly not seen Swifties going to a concert. <laughs> and I dare say I will survive. <laughs> we'll leave it there. I want to thank you, Leela Jacinto. I want to thank Vivian Walt. Marie Jago, I want to thank as well Nico Hines for being with us uh, from London. Thank you for joining us here in the world this week.